Thank you, Alice. Um, so like I said, we've been spending the summer in uh, some biblical books of wisdom. And what we're doing is, is we're looking at what does the Bible have to say uh, that would make us wise people. But in that journey, we're not just wanting for a set of principles to lead us into wisdom. The Bible does have principles. The Bible does have some very wise sayings. But ultimately, according to Scripture, the way that the Bible makes us wise is not by leading us to principles, but by leading us to a person. That in the New Testament, that Jesus himself is called wisdom from God. That Jesus himself is the embodiment of wisdom. That Jesus, in order, if we want to be truly wise people, it doesn't just mean we master the principles of biblical wisdom. There's some truth in that, but the, the ultimate goal, the ultimate aim of biblical wisdom is to get us to Jesus. So each week what we're doing is we're looking at what does the Bible have to say in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Those are two of the five books of wisdom in the Old Testament. What do those, what do those books have to say in relationship to a certain topic? And we want to gain kind of a fully orbed understanding of that topic uh, through the wisdom literature. But ultimately, we would fall way short if we talk about biblical wisdom and don't land in talking about Jesus, because he is ultimate wisdom. And so we want to learn wisdom around topics, but ultimately we want to learn what does Jesus have to say? What has the work of Jesus done for me as it relates to this topic of choice in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And so today, the topic at hand that we're going to do um, and walk through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is, is work, labor, toil. First question of the day. Can people in the back see that font size? We good? Great. Thank you, Fred. Um, so as we talk about work, one biblical thing that has to be foundational that we need to understand before we even can enter into Proverbs or Ecclesiastes is that biblically speaking, work is good. Work is not bad. Work is not a product of the fall. Work is not a product of sin entering the world and shattering everything. Work being difficult, work being cursed, work being tenuous and strenuous is a result of the fall. But work in and of itself is not bad. In fact, Genesis chapter 2 would say you were made to work. You were created to work. You were made in God's image. And guess what God does all throughout the Bible, but especially in Genesis 1 and 2? He works. He's laboring. He speaks the world into existence, and he forms it and paints this world on a, on a canvas, and he labors for it. And so because we're made in God's image, we were made to work. Work is not bad. Work is actually a reflection of being made in God's image. Work is a great thing. But like we've talked about in several other topics, we've talked about it with desire and our emotions, we've talked about it with suffering, that, that there's an, a, a way to understand this topic through biblical wisdom, but we have to start with the fact that it's more important how you enter this topic as to whether or not you understand work in health or unhealth. It's more important to get beneath the surface of this topic. What's driving you work? What kind of work do you do? Not vocationally, but what, what, is the, what is the impetus or the root system of your tree of work? That's what the Bible's after. That's what the Bible would say. Do you want to be wise and healthy in your understanding of work? We've got to get beneath the surface. What's causing you to work will determine whether or not you have wisdom in your work. So we're going to journey through and we're going to look at two paths, what the Bible has to say about work and what the Bible has to say about folly in our work or foolishness in our work and what the Bible has to say about wisdom in our work. What does it mean to be a biblically wise person as it relates to our work and what does it mean to have folly in our work, to have foolishness in our work? And, and you may have heard some of the passages that Lou Alice read. It, 
I'm sure as it relates to your history with this topic in the Bible, especially if you heard some of the passages that you've read, you may think, is Midtown like a prosperity gospel place that if you work hard, you're gonna be rich? Because that's what some of the passages kind of sounded like. And if you work hard enough and say the right things and believe the right things, your work is gonna be blessed. Is that what Midtown believes? No. It's been, some of those passages have been taken out of context to believe like if you work your, if you work your land diligently, you're gonna be blessed. If you don't work, you're gonna be poor. And so really what it means is if you work hard, you're gonna be rich, and that's what we're about here. That's not what we're about. What we're trying to, to gain is what does the Bible have to say about wise work? What does the Bible have to say about foolish work? And what's driving all of that conversation? And so the first thing that folly would say to us, we're gonna spend some time talking about folly first in our work. The first thing, the, the thesis of the foolish worker, the, the driving factor in all foolish work is this, is that their work is self Seeking. And you may be in a job where you hate what you do. You may be a full-time um, mother or full-time parent. And you may be going, there is nothing about my work that is self-seeking. All of my work is exhausting. I don't even enjoy what I do. And, and here's what we need to understand. Is that work can be self-seeking in some very subtle ways. And that's what we need to unearth. That's what we need to talk about. But let's set the playing field first. Just as, just as, a, as, a, as a catch-all to, to level the ground for all of us. Everyone in here is working. I don't care if you have a vocation or a nine to five or not, everyone in here is working because work is simply the exertion of energy to complete something, the exertion of energy towards a task or a function. And so if you are a full-time mom or a full-time dad, or if you are half-time, or if you work 120 hours a week, everything in between, you are working towards something. Even if you're retired, you're working. You're exerting energy towards some end. That's the biblical definition of work. And folly in work comes to us and says, is your work self-seeking? Are you self-absorbed in your work? Are you thinking about self in the energy and the labor that you're exerting? And like I said, you may say, look, I, I, I chase toddlers all day. I'm laboring all day. I'm not thinking about myself. I don't have time to think about myself. And the Bible would say, don't make it so simple. There's ways to be self-seeking in your labor that are very subtle, that are underneath the surface. And here's the first way. The Bible says that the foolish worker, folly in work, is marked by being lazy. And that was some of the passages that Lewis read, read for us, that, that the Bible calls this being a sluggard, the Bible calls this being a sloth, that sloth in work is a result of folly in work, which is being driven by being self-seeking in your labor. Slothfulness, sluggardness. Historically, throughout the church for thousands of years, slothfulness, laziness, has been designated as one of the seven deadly sins. See, we see laziness and we just think, oh, they just need to develop a work habit. But what lazy people really are is toxic. They're deadly. Not just to people around them, but to themselves. Dorothy Sayers, famous author who I haven't read a ton of, but enough of to quote and seem cool. She says in her commenting on the seven deadly sins, she defines slothfulness this way. And here in it, the result of slothfulness being driven by being self-seeking. It's self-seeking, self-absorption is what drives being lazy for people. Listen to how she describes slothfulness. It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing it would die for. We have known it far too well for many years. The only thing perhaps that we have not known about slothfulness is that it is a mortal sin. 
And that's not meant to like scare you into a work ethic. What that's meant to do is for us to ask the question, has my self-absorption made me lazy? And I don't even have anything that I love more than myself. I'm only thinking about me. And getting up for me, getting out of bed to work hard for me has kind of run its course. And I'm only so self-consumed I can't even work hard towards anything outside of myself. And so I love nothing. I fight for nothing. I interfere with nothing. I work for nothing. I only remain alive because there's nothing worth dying for. And uh, slothful, lazy people tend to ask one question when they are approached with the idea of working. What's it going to cost me? Is it going to cost me time? Is it going to cost me money? Is it going to cost me self-sacrifice? Is it going to cost me pain? Is it going to cost me discomfort? Because I don't know if I'm willing to pay for what that work will cost me. I'm not willing to set down my own self-absorption to think about working hard towards something because that might cost me something. Lazy people are always counting the cost, and it ultimately ends with not caring about anything but themselves. And so biblically speaking, laziness is one of the fruits of folly in our work. And it's true. She read several Proverbs that talk about this, and so this is, this is a biblical fruit. However, I don't think this is how folly normally manifests itself in Nashville. It is a way that folly can manifest itself in the world. I don't think we have a whole lot of lazy people in the room, maybe three of you. But, the, but if you're in Nashville, if you've stayed in Nashville, if you can pay rent in Nashville, you're probably not lazy. <laughs> but that doesn't mean, unless you're a lazy trust fund kid, sorry. But, the, but here's the, we don't have many of those. I'd love to meet you if you're here. But we, we, we don't have this fruit of folly in our work very often in Nashville. And so you might look at this and you might go, well, I'm not lazy, I'm not slothful, that's not really my thing, so I'm not, I don't have any folly in my work. But here's where the Bible moves into the second ring, the, the second layer of how self-seeking folly manifests itself at work. It's not that you're lazy, it's that you overwork. It's that you can't set anything down. It's that you're always working. It's that you don't know how to stop working. It's that you're over-exuding yourself for the cost of working because working has become this thing to you that it was never meant to be. Listen to how Ecclesiastes um, drives this bus. Listen to how it, it comments on overworkingness being a result of folly and self-seekingness in our work. It says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, and even at night, their minds do not rest. See, in a city that's built on celebrity, in a city that's built on success, in a city that's built on public glory, in a city that's built on mattering, it's really, really easy to slip into the folly of overworking When folly is driving my work, Ecclesiastes 2 says, I produce anxious toil, meaning there's an anxiety that won't ever let you stop working. You can't put stuff down, so you become anxious of of even the thought of am I doing enough, or could I do more, or what would be better, or what's the key that's going to unlock my success and my glory. I can never work too hard or overwork because so much is riding on my work, on my performance, on my job, on my salary, on my reputation, on my success. We work for an image, we work for a lifestyle, we work for public glory, and when all that comes together, we overwork ourselves, and folly begins to look at us and smile down, because, what did it say in Ecclesiastes, we become people who even at night, my mind cannot rest. 
Plainly put, one indicator that folly may be driving your work is that you're exhausted. It might be the most, and maybe, maybe you don't do this. Maybe I'm just the only one that does this and all of my friends. But when you ask people how you're doing, what's generally the number one answer? So tired. I mean, I'm good, but I'm, I'm tired. I'm just, I'm just, I'm pouring myself out. It just never, it never stops. The, the relentlessness of life. It just, you know, I'm working, I'm parenting, I'm traveling. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. What drives this? What drives self-seeking work to such a degree that it would make me restless? It would make me joyless. It would make my laboring, my working, my vocation a life-sucking experience. It's when this happens as a result of when I need my work to produce something for me. So I overwork in order to get it, and it's when I need my work to give me an identity. I need my work to produce for me an identity. I need my work to tell me something about me that I want to be true. I want to be known as a certain way. I want to, be, I want to think of myself in a certain way. I don't really know who I am, so maybe if I'm successful in this field, I will get an identity that I so desperately desire. And so I demand that work produce something for me that it was never meant to produce. I want my work to tell me who I am. I want my work to make me worth something. I've got to get something from it. I've got, to, I've got to produce something from my work. And biblically speaking, work was never meant to give me an identity. Listen to how Ecclesiastes chapter four, this is one of the passages that Lualis read. It talks about what drives this overwork. It talks about how folly manifests itself in its overworkingness. Listen to what it says is driving that. Ecclesiastes chapter four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Do you think it's possible that the reason why you get up to do what you do in the morning, whether you're mothering or financial planning and everything in between, whatever it is that you do, is it possible that you get up in the work and you get up to work hard in the morning and you overwork because you're jealous of a life that you don't have? That you want something that you don't currently have, which is peace and rest and contentment and an identity that would tell you who you are. And you think, if I just work harder at it, at my job and become successful enough at it or get some more zeros in my bank account, if I can do enough, maybe my work will. Is it possible that Kohelet, who wrote Ecclesiastes, was right? That what's driving you in all of your skill and all of your work is envy of your neighbor, meaning my work better give me something that I don't currently have. Is it possible that the reason why you raise the kids the way you do, why you strive for your career the way you do, why you anxiously think about how successful or unsuccessful you're being, all of that is being driven by wanting a different life, being envious and expecting your job to give it to you. Is that possible? So a couple months ago, Adam Sandler hosted SNL, and um, he had a hilarious bit on there about uh, he ran this tour company that, that led tours in Italy. And he had this Jersey accent and it was great and I'm not gonna do it. But he, he, was, he led tours for Americans in Italy. And he's saying, you know, we can go dive off the Amalfi Coast and we can go drink wine in Venice and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll take you to pasta making classes and all these things and he's selling the, the tour experience in Italy. But then he stops and he goes, but just, just so you know, um, we've had some bad Yelp reviews. We've had some bad reviews online on our website. And I need you to know that if you're really sad here in America, and I take you to Italy to do all these fun things, you're still going to be sad there. 
Like if you're miserable at home, this trip to Italy isn't gonna make you not miserable. Like I can show you all the wine in Italy, I can't show you all the reasons or fix all the reasons why you love to drink wine. And so he's saying like, there's something that I can't do with this, with this tour, there's something that this tour can't do for you, because here's what he says, he says, if you come to Italy, you're still gonna be you in Italy. You'll just be in Italy instead of being in Jersey. Like you, I can't fix you. I can take you to Italy though. That, that's kind of what Kohelet, what the, the, the biblical wisdom would say to our job. When you demand that it do something for you that it was never meant to do, when you want your work to produce something for you that it was never meant to do, you'll still be you. Even if you're successful, even if you, if you get a number one hit, even if you climb the ranks at your corporate ladder, even if you get the thing that you want, even if your kids turn out perfect and that's what you've labored for for years, it can't give you what you wanted it to give you because you'll still be you in Italy or in successful job situation. But we overwork for it. And so what's driving us in this envy is for the work to give me something that it was never meant to give me, but because I, I can't see that, I'm blinded by it, I overwork for it, and then I become exhausted. There's never enough peace, there's never enough rest, and the self-seekingness of my work never stops because it will never be enough, and I, will, I never actually get to the identity that I want, and so I have to keep working. I've got to keep making more money. I've got to keep being successful. I've got to keep doing the things that I've always done because they've, that's the carrot on the string, right? It, if I arrive there, then I'll have the identity that I want. Like, let's just say hypothetically that you've been successful in Nashville, whatever that means. If you're in this room, it's probably true. On some level, if you're here, you've had some success You've gotten some public notoriety, some glory at your workplace. You've done something that's been successful. You wouldn't be here. You're a well-recognized doctor. You've written great songs. You're an amazing student. Other moms are jealous of your kids. Let's just assume that you've done your job with excellence, and now your job, your labor, is somehow tied to your identity. Somehow in your mind, what I've done, what I've accomplished, has become who I am. I'm known as a good lawyer. I'm known as a good mom. I'm known as someone who's been successful. I'm known as someone who's made money. Well, let's make it real personal. You want true confessions? I'm known as someone who a lot of people come to their church. And so I've done this thing. We've accomplished something, however we've defined success in that area. Now we've accomplished something. But now, because I've worshipped it, because it's been all about me, my identity is now tied to the success of my work. And so if this went away, I don't know what would happen to this. And now the work and the identity become inextricable. You can't tell the difference. You don't know where one stops and the other begins. And so now... Because that's happened, because I've been so self-consumed in my work, thinking that my work can give me an identity, and now it started to give me a little cocaine hit of an identity, and now that feels good, and I don't know how to separate the two things, my work from my identity, that I have to figure out how to keep up the charade of success at my work because I can't lose this. But it all started with the self-seekingness of how I approach my work. It all started with the folly of my work where I've made work my identity, and now I can't separate it. So I have to keep the treadmill on. I don't know boundaries. I don't know how to say no. It's the Ponzi scheme of folly and work. 
You keep making promises to yourself, you keep writing checks and you don't know how you're gonna cash them. You have to keep up the charade and the facade. You have to keep delivering or else your identity might go away because my work has become my identity. I can't put anything down. I can't let people know what's actually going on behind the curtain. And as a result, I have no idea not only how to say no to things, how to put boundaries up, I don't even know where the resources are gonna come from to keep doing my work the way I wanna do them. And so the result is this, I'm exhausted. I'm wiped, I'm drained, I'm depleted. When my work is all about me, when my self-seeking folly in work has tied my identity to my work, I become exhausted. Some of us perhaps become slothful, most of us become exhausted. So what does wisdom say to that? If that's, if that's how Proverbs and Ecclesiastes would describe how folly manifests itself in work, what does wisdom have to say to us in our work, in our labor, in our vocations? Wisdom, wisdom says to us that our work and our labor, instead of being self-seeking, in order to be wise, has to be self-sacrificing. I've gotta learn the art of what does it mean to give myself away and not get anything in return. I've gotta learn the art of what does my work look like when I'm thinking about other people instead of thinking about myself. What does it look like where this work isn't tied to my identity and now I'm truly freed up in my work to think about other people. Proverbs chapter 11, Lou Alice read this for us, said this, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Which if you stop long enough to think about this, that's insane. When the righteous, when the wise prosper, meaning get blessed and make more money and given more influence and given more power and given more resources, when the righteous prosper, the whole city rejoices. How is that possible? Because what the city knows is when a righteous, wise person becomes prosperous, when a righteous, wise person is given more power and more influence, guess who's gonna benefit? Everybody. So I hope that person gets more power. I hope that person gets more influence because what they do with their resources is they're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about how can I bless everybody else. And so when the righteous prosper, the whole city rejoices. I'm so glad that person got promoted. I'm so glad that person has more power because it's gonna be good for all of us when that happens. The city rejoices when a wise, righteous person who's not self-seeking but self-sacrificing gets more power, influence, and money. And people, human beings, can only get to self-sacrificial work. They can only get there when they don't demand that their work give them something it was never meant to give them. Self-sacrificing work can only, only, only happen when we stop making our work give us something it was never meant to give us. The self-seekingness has to be absorbed. It has to be quieted and put to bed, and that's only gonna happen when we don't demand that our work give us something it was never meant to give us. And then our labor, our work, can turn into being for the sake of other people. It can only happen in our jobs when we stop demanding our work to give us something it can't give us. See, we think that self-sacrificing work will, will not lead to joy. We think that there's no way self-sacrificing work can lead us to joy because I've, de- I've decided, we've all decided on some level that if I'm gonna have joy or satisfaction in my work, it's gotta make me happy. So we say things like this, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. And that's bull. Because what the Bible says about that is that you're still thinking about you. Love what you do and you'll never even feel like you're working. 
That's folly according to the Bible because who's still the center of that whole paradigm shift? Self. Me loving what I do is the most important thing. Me loving what I do will bring me joy. No. Wisdom says the only way to find satisfaction and joy in your work is when you stop making it about you and you make it about everybody else. It will lead you to joy and satisfaction when you stop thinking about you. And so the whole, it's actually a crushing burden for an entire generation, myself included, that believes I will find satisfaction in work when I finally fall in love with what I'm doing. And so we skip around and hop around. I just haven't found what I'm passionate about. I just haven't found what I love to do yet. And we, we demand that I love getting up to go to work every day. And the Bible never promises that. Love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life is foolishness. Love other people with what you do and you'll find joy and satisfaction in your work. That's what wisdom has to say to us. And if that's true, if I can begin to experience the joy of self-sacrificing work, if I can become a wise, joyful person, here will be the indicator. Folly indicates itself. Folly manifests itself in laziness and overwork. Notice what the Bible has to say, that the, the indication of wisdom in work manifests itself in this way 100% of the time, is that you understand how to rest. The number one indicator that you're a wise worker is that you know how to rest. Not laziness or overworking. And what we tend to do is we think about rest as some middle ground between this. Like I'm not not working and I'm also not working 150 hours a week. So I'm somewhere in the middle and that's kind of my rest. Or I start to think about rest and I dumb it down with words like this. I just need a break. That's not rest. But the Bible says if you're going to rest in your work, you've got to put down what you've demanded your work give you. If you're going to get rest in your work, guess what you have to have before you work? A solid identity. And now, instead of making work give me an identity, now I have an identity. I can rest, and so I can work from that place. I don't work for that place. I work because I'm already there. I work because I'm resting not I work to get rest. I don't need a break. I, I can rest because I can put stuff down. But I don't have to be an overworker or a, or a slothful worker. I can rest and work. And biblically speaking, like we said, rest only comes. This is, this, these are two sides of the same coin. Rest only comes when you have an identity that is not dependent on what you do. Rest only comes when you have an identity that doesn't depend on what you do. Rest comes, biblically speaking, when God gives you an identity that doesn't depend on what you do. Or in the words of St. Augustine, you have made us restless, O Lord, until we find our rest in thee. Rest comes from having an identity before I perform. This was in our call to worship. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are... Uh, who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all you overworkers. Come to me, all you people who are anxious and who are demanding to get something from your work that it can't give you. And what does Jesus promise? And I will give you rest. And let me just make a little biblical note. There's not an asterisk by that word in Matthew 11. I will give you rest if you work really hard. I will give you rest if you accomplish some stuff. He says, come to me and lay down all the overworking you've been doing to get an identity. Come and just take my rest, take my yoke. That's, that's literally like a word for work. Take, take my work upon you and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus comes to us and says, let me give you an identity that doesn't depend on what you do so that you can be free to go do what I've called you to do. This is actually the paradigm that Jesus himself 
worked out of. This is how Jesus worked so hard. This is how Jesus, Jesus infinitely more than us understood how to rest and so he could work. Jesus infinitely more than us understood his identity before he worked. Matthew chapter 3, right before Jesus goes to begin his public ministry, he's done no miracles, he's healed nobody, he's not announced his plan to come save the world at all. Matthew chapter 3, he's being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Noted before he's even done anything. He hasn't done anything yet. And what does the father come to him and say? You are my son, and with you I'm well pleased. And you haven't performed a lick. You haven't done anything. Before his public ministry began, he was given an identity. And then Jesus worked from that identity. His identity was the identity of the son. And I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm not trying to please anybody. He's already pleased with me. The father's already told me, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus knew his identity, and he worked from that place. And so he doesn't just lead us by example into that. Jesus actually, in his freedom of having a secure identity before he worked, actually then, his work on the cross, his work, the work of Jesus, is actually now where we get our identity from. And this is how ludicrous this is. The work of Jesus literally comes to you and says, you don't have to do anything. Let me do all the work for you. Let me monergistically save you by myself without, I don't need your help in doing this. Let me work for you to give you an identity, to give you a rest, so that that's now who you are apart from anything you've done. Would you work from that place? Do you realize how insane that would be for a city to see people who aren't working to get something, but working because they already have something? I don't have to climb the ladder like you do. I don't have to step over you like everybody else. I don't have to be competitive with you or hate you. I already know who I am because of the work of Jesus for me. I'm at rest so I can work really hard because I don't need my work to give me something that it was never meant to give me. In fact, this is, this is a little lesson in church history. Do you know it's why we gather on Sundays this paradigm shift in Christianity, where we work from rest instead of working towards rest, is what makes Christianity Christianity. That historically, for thousands of years, God's people in the Old Testament, they worked six days a week. First day of the week was Sunday. They worked Sunday, they worked Monday, they worked all the way through Friday. And then their Sabbath was Saturday, meaning they worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and then rested. But Christianity came and flipped that on its head and said, no, 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 you don't work to get rest. Jesus has purchased your rest. Now let's start the week with our rest. Sunday's the first day of the week. Let's talk about our rest, then you can go work. Jesus accomplished a rest for you. He did all the work necessary. So now we can work from that place. I'm not working to get a break. I'm working because I don't need what the world needs from their work. I've already got it. So now I can go work really hard and, and, and know what it means to not work and be okay. I'm, I'm, I actually can sleep at night. I can sleep great at night. Because we have rest from the work of Jesus, we now have an identity that cannot be earned or proved. Now we can rest. And wisdom says, work from that place. And so what would it look like this week? starting like tomorrow when your work week starts, what would it look like if you knew the identity and the rest that was yours for you to enter your work that way? What would it look like? Well, it could look like a thousand different ways, but here's one thing that I think in the typical Nashvillean way, we all know what it's like to overwork. Here's one thing I would challenge you with like this week. 
would you say no to something? Don't say no to like serving your spouse. Like say no, say no, say no to something that's related here. Because you know at your work, or ask the Lord to show you at your work, where am I overworking to get something? And what would it look like if I said no to that because I've already got it? I don't need it. Where am I working just to impress somebody? Where am I working to get someone's approval? Where am I working to make more money just for making more money's sake? Where am I saying yes to a whole bunch of things and I'm exhausted and I can't sleep at night? Would you just say no to one thing this week? And you don't even have to explain yourself. Just say no to it because you've already got what you need from it. That's why we gather, like we said on Sundays, we gather to enter the Sabbath rest of laying our work down we rest our souls, we rest our bodies on this day to give us the sanity of working with wisdom. And here's what the Bible says. Would you enter every Sabbath day entering into his work for you and let that give you rest so that then you can work. So we're gonna sing about that as we close and we'll pray that the Holy Spirit gives us rest for our souls as we do that. Let's pray. Jesus, um, so many of us are exhausted. And there's a difference uh, between um, pouring ourselves out with work that you've called us to and pouring ourselves out for the sake of getting something from our work that it it was never meant to give. So teach us wisdom in that. Teach us um, where you're calling us, not where we're demanding something from our work. But more than that, Father, uh, knowing the whole spectrum of people that are in the room this morning, we all need Sabbath rest in order to lay our work down. So would you, would you call us into your work this morning, call us into the work that you've done for us, that we would be a people marked by rest, not exhaustion. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.